Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. When asked about the turning point of the Civil War, many historians will identify the Battle of Antietam which of course led to the issuing of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. Our guest tonight agrees that Antietam was a critical turning point in the struggle between North and South, but also in a parallel struggle that took place below the public's view, one that could have been just as fatal to the American Republic as a rebel victory. Join us for a conversation with Richard Slotkin, author of The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, overlooking the place where the buses park and pick up the students in front of the old gymnasium building. But not speaking for the university, nor will our guest speak for any institution but himself. Always we're on our own here at Civil War Talk Radio. It is a cold evening, Wednesday evening in March of 2014. It is the coldest winter in many parts of the country that a lot of us experienced in decades. And uh, no difference here. We had another day of school 
delayed, some classes uh, postponed here at East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, and there have been cold temperatures everywhere around the country, um, so much so that yesterday uh, the local high school was closed, which meant the soccer team didn't play, which meant my daughter's team had their game rescheduled for tonight, and I'm missing a uh, uh, a soccer game of, of uh, Maria's team. It's something I had hoped not to do this season, but uh, one must keep one's appointments. I can report, however, that at halftime, uh, just after halftime, uh, the J.H. Uh, Rose Rampants are down two to nothing. Uh, the other team scored right after uh, the halftime kickoff and, and doubled their lead to two. So we'll uh, keep you posted as the bulletins come in through the evening as to how the girls' varsity is doing there at Rose High School. I know I, I get, well, actually, I don't get any email at all about it. But if I got any, I would be reporting on it to you now. And... Uh, one other local news item uh, to share, uh, I mentioned last week it was external review time here at East Carolina in the history department, and uh, uh, two colleagues, uh, Chester Patch from uh, Ohio University and Ken Libertito from Florida International came by along with one of our own colleagues from uh, the anthropology department and spent the last two days here visiting with us. And what a pleasure it was to have other historians around uh, in addition to my colleagues, of course, but to have uh, reviewers who are actual historians and not administrators and assessment gurus uh, who don't know a darn thing about the past or what historians do or why our work is important. Uh, it, it was just, it was a real pleasure to have uh, uh, these uh, colleagues of ours here uh, looking at us critically and telling us what we're doing wrong and what we're doing right but at least having a clue as to why it's important to study the past. We didn't have to start from ground zero as we have to do with some of the assessment folks. Uh, so that was actually a good thing. Well, enough of that. Let's, about the past, talk briefly about the future before we dive into the Antietam campaign. Uh, next week, no live show. It'll be spring break here mm -hmm. at East Carolina, and I will be in sunny Ann Arbor, Michigan, taking uh, my daughter on a college visit. Um, so, uh, as, as I've said in the past, if anyone has an additional five to $10,000 to help finance Murray's education, feel free to send it this way. Uh, after that, the following week, March 19th, we'll be back. Jared Peatman has a book on the Gettysburg Address. He was going to visit us in February, but weather got in the way. Uh, he'll be back. Ray Catherine Amy on March 26th. A new book on Abraham Lincoln in the kitchen, uh, foodways, food history, a, a growing uh, area of, of historical research, interestingly, uh, will be with us. Robert Girardi on the 4th has uh, a book on Civil War generals, uh, really written by the generals. He's put together their uh, comments about one another. It's like a, uh, well, I won't make any comparisons till till we get there. April 9th, Corey Recco on Spy for the Union, an obscure and interesting espionage tale. Uh, Robert Connor on April 16th joins us with a biography of Gordon Granger. 
on the 23rd. James Conroy has a book on the peace conference at Hampton Roads in 1865, which has scarcely been written about uh, in the detail it deserves. On April 30, uh, Catherine Meyer with the uh, Nature's Civil War, a book on the environmental history of the war. In May, we've got uh, more folks coming up. Michael C. C. Adams has a new book, Living Hell, on the uh, the, the real horrors of the war. Uh, he is uh, someone who's been writing about the war for many years and, and will be with us in, uh, in May. And we've got others as well. Linda Barnacle with a new book on Millikan's Bend. Uh, so all kinds of interesting topics coming up in the next few months. Please join us for those. You can follow them as always at www.impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney keeps us fully informed as to who's coming up and that's where you find links to the show that you're listening to right now and uh, other past shows and there are the uh, active PayPal links you can click on the PayPal button send uh, donations to the show to help us buy books frequently publishers are generous in sending review copies but Sometimes it's harder to prize one out, and then I have to grit my teeth and actually buy a darn book. Uh, and that's where your support is is most welcome. Some of it also goes to help keep the website going. If you're going to buy a book, do it through the Amazon link on the Impediments of War website, and you'll help out the show that way, and it won't cost you anything extra. For the short time, if you do contribute $30 to the show, I can send you a copy of Did Lincoln Own Slaves? and other frequently asked questions about Abraham Lincoln. A few copies of that have been unearthed and be happy to send them to you. Enough about that. Let's get to our guest tonight. He is the Olin Professor of English and American Studies at Wesleyan University in Middletown, Connecticut. Uh, he was elected to the Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2010, uh, a distinguished uh, historian and author, and uh, happy to welcome to the show tonight Richard Slotkin. Uh, Professor Slotkin, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, welcome. Uh, it, it's good to have you uh, on Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for inviting me. I was looking at... an issue of Lincoln Lore, the Bulletin of the of the Lincoln Museum of Fort Wayne, Indiana, from the year 2000, uh, which I edited at the time, and there's an, an interview of that uh, you did with Scott Bushnell of yes. uh, Fort Wayne uh, about your novel Abe, and I, I wondered if you recalled that. Uh, uh, not in detail, no. It, it, I, uh, I remember having the interview, but I don't, I don't recall what we discussed. I, I went to the shelf and pulled that out because in my own mind, I had thought that I had conducted that interview. Uh, I'm, I'm old enough to be forgetting pretty much everything now. And I, so I pulled a copy of Lincoln Lore off the shelf and I saw, no, it was my friend Scott uh, Bushnell who, who worked uh, with the Lincoln Museum on various projects. Mm -hmm. But I do recall reading the novel at the time and enjoying it very much. Uh, it, it's an interesting take on Abraham Lincoln looking at his, his early life. Yeah, I, I basically saw him as uh, a kind of Huckleberry Finn-like character uh, who, who uh, has to overcome uh, the ignorance of his, uh, of his family and the, the poverty of his background, um, and who also takes a raft trip down the Mississippi, which, which Abe actually did, and got to see slavery at first hand that way. 
the difference being that where where Huck lights out for the territory, uh, Abe actually gets to do something about slavery. Uh, he does, and and the uh, the novel really brings brings the character to life, uh, given how little how scarce the actual sources are in that period in his life. Uh, there there's room to for creative uh, writing about it. You, some of our listeners, I'm sure, have read your your works on the Battle of the Crater, both uh, novel and nonfiction. Yeah. Uh, so you've you've written about the Civil War before. Uh, what brought you to the the Antietam campaign? Well, there are a few different things. That, for me, the Civil War um, is the watershed of so many things in in, in American society. But uh, primarily, for me, it's about slavery and it's about race. And I had written uh, the Crater. Because, uh, as you may know, the, the battle ends with a, with a, uh, a massacre of black troops, uh, not only by uh, Confederate uh, troops that had stormed the crater, but some white Union troops uh, joined in the massacre. And, and for me, that battle symbolized the underlying theme of race, which uh, the Civil War didn't really settle. It just put it on a, on a new basis by stripping away slavery as a kind of moral as well as social issue from the top of that and forced Americans to look at race uh, and race difference and race hatred uh, straight in the eye. So having done that with my books about the crater, what I wanted to do with the Antietam book was to have a, was, was to, to focus really on the significance of uh, Lincoln's move against slavery, uh, which, uh, uh, of course, comes before the Battle of the Crater. Uh, and, and I guess I had felt that, um, given the way recent scholarship has gone on, on the Emancipation Proclamation, its, uh, it, it's, its effects have, have uh, been minimized in many ways. Uh, many historians emphasize what the, uh, what the Emancipation Proclamation didn't do. Uh, critiques of uh, Lincoln's uh, racial attitudes point out that uh, he doesn't free all the slaves. At this point, he may not even have been intending uh, to free all the slaves. And he certainly is not issuing uh, what, uh, a kind of call for racial equality once uh, the question of slavery is dealt with. And I just felt that that was, uh, that was judging Lincoln uh, with the advantage or disadvantage of 150-odd years of hindsight, uh, knowing what didn't work out. Uh, knowing that the Civil War may have abolished slavery, but it didn't produce uh, social justice. Um, but, but looking at the, the Emancipation Proclamation at the time, you realize what a profoundly revolutionary act it was. Um, if you just look at it <clears throat> excuse me, in, uh, in financial terms, it was es- it's been estimated that the, the total wealth of the United States in, uh, during the Civil War period was about $16 billion in uh, uh, well, contemporary measurement. And the value of slave property was about $4 billion, which is roughly a quarter of uh, the national wealth. And when Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, he, in effect, annihilated, wiped off the books, 25% of the national wealth. Uh, now, that's an act of, of uh, economic uh, um, overturn that rivals uh, 
Henry VIII taking over all the monasteries in England, um, and could even be compared with the Russian Revolution's abolition of, of private property, though it doesn't go quite that far. Uh, so it's really quite a, an, astounding, an astounding act. And then the other aspect of it is uh, he not only uh, says that he's going to take blacks into the Union uh, military service, but he says at one point in the, in the proclamation that um, uh, he, wants, he hopes that slaves will, uh, will not rise up in rebellion against their masters, will not use violence, except in self-defense. And that seemingly innocuous and bland phrase is, is, is the most revolutionary phrase in the whole document, because slaves, by definition, have no right of self-defense. And he is, through this legal act, saying, yes, you, you have the right to defend yourself. I hope you won't, I hope you, won't uh, you know, stage a violent uprising, but you now have the right not only to serve in the American military, the right to fight, but you also have a right of self-defense, which the law of slavery absolutely forbade. The, uh, the question of, of how important it was, certainly in the... the uh, Elimination of slavery as a, a form of wealth is obviously critical. I, I would suggest that in terms of comparison, it's not uh, the, the Henry VIII comparison is actually quite valid because uh, he didn't destroy the churches but just transferred their ownership. And right. likewise, the, the wealth is it, it's not annihilated except in a bookkeeping sense. It's right. transferred. The, the, the yeah. slaves now own their own future labor. Yeah. Uh, so nothing is destroyed. Well, uh, you know, I, I, it's, maybe it's a quibble, but mm-hmm. um, before, if, if, when a slave is a slave, the slave can be sold for money. Mm-hmm. If the slave is no longer a slave, nobody can sell him for money, and in fact, he can't even sell himself for money. True. So, so in that sense, it, it really is the annihilation of pro, uh, of property. But again, just to, to uh, just to emphasize the significance of this at uh, at, at, at the time, we can't even find a perfect legal and historical analogy for this True. act, uh, which tells you that he's that Lincoln had had you know pushed the envelope really uh, you know well beyond what what anyone had imagined at that point. Clearly, he had done that. We're going to take a short break now and come back, talk more about the long road to Antietam, how the Civil War became a revolution. We're talking with its the book's author, Richard Slotkin. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. 
Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back. Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich talking tonight with Richard Slotkin about his new book, The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution. Uh, We talked a bit in our first segment about the importance of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, Richard, what I wanted to push on here, and you and I have never, I don't think, been formally introduced. I hope first names are acceptable. That's fine, Uh, sure. uh, Do you go by Richard? Rich? Rich. Rich, uh, and please call me Jerry. Um, Rich, what really uh, struck me about this book was that uh, it's about the long road to Antietam. The Battle of Antietam is is marvelously described, uh, but what I found unique about this was the description of the contest between McClellan and Lincoln that in many ways is deeper than the contest between McClellan and Lee. Uh, uh, how, uh, what is McClellan's, uh, in the, 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 McClellan's the problem child of the Civil War. Everybody has theories about him. Uh, how did this, this person with so much promise turn out so ineffective? Well, uh, I, there, there are a lot of explanations for that, some of which have to do with uh, technical military matters, but uh, the, my take on him really is that uh, his problem is that he's not only a gen- the general in command of the Army of the Potomac, he's the leader of the uh, political opposition to Abe Lincoln. And he sees himself as the only man who can save the republic, not only from the secessionists on one side, but from the radical republicans and abolitionists on the other. And uh, so he sees that uh, in order to do that, he feels 
to put to sort of cut to the chase on this, that he has to gain control of policy making in the Lincoln administration. Um, and uh, he goes through several phases of, of uh, ways of, of dealing with this. And by the time we get to the, the, the months before Antietam, his idea is to get rid of Secretary of War Stanton. If he can force Lincoln to fire Stanton, then he feels Lincoln will have to rely on him for military advice, uh, and not only for military advice, but for political advice as well. And, and so, he successfully got rid of, of General Scott earlier, so oh, this yeah. is not an impossibility for him. No, no, he's, he's an extremely powerful person. He's, uh, the Democratic Party had really lost its entire civilian leadership uh, by the summer of 1861, all of the Southerners who had led the party had gone south. And Stephen Douglas, who was the preeminent figure in the northern uh, wing of the party, died uh, in, in, 18, in the summer of 1861. So uh, there's really nobody to, to pull the party together. And uh, the New York um, uh, political bosses and bankers who uh, are really trying to reorganize the party choose McClellan as their man. And for good reason. Uh, he's, uh, he's been associated, he was associated with uh, Stephen Douglas's political uh, um, movement in, in Illinois before the war. Uh, and he comes to uh, the, the, the question of how to fight the war as a conciliationist. That is to say, the idea is, is not to subdue the South completely by military force, but to force the South to make some kind of compromise. And in order to do that, you, you have to leave slave, you have to promise to leave slavery alone. And, uh, so every move in the direction, uh, let's say, of confiscating the property of active rebels, uh, is, uh, is something that McClellan is opposed to. Uh, and he feels that, uh, he underestimates Lincoln. He think Lincoln, Link, thinks Lincoln is both stupid and morally weak. And that he, if he can just get rid of Stanton, he can, uh, he can control Lincoln's, uh, Lincoln's thinking, which is probably the worst <laughs> miscalculation of his career, the second worst being his miscalculation of, of Robert E. Lee. Now, he was not a good judge of his opponent's character. But no. d- d- to give McClellan, I wouldn't say credit necessarily, but his interpretation of the war policy in 1861 and early 1862 is not far from Lincoln, who still yes. cherishes a belief that the rebellion is, is the product of Jeff Davis and his cronies, That's right. and the, the vast majority of Southern uh, white voters are, are loyal at heart, and one good knock, and they'll, they'll come around, so don't hurt them too much in the meantime. Right. Yeah, they, they, are, they are in harmony in, in that regard at the start, but by the time you get to um, July of 1862, Lincoln is already becoming convinced that uh, the only bo- that 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 it's not going to take just a few battles that you're really going to have to destroy the south's ability to sustain the war uh the, the southern armies have shown real determination to keep the field uh the davis government has shown real capacity in mobilizing the society for war and he doesn't expect them to simply fold their tents uh you know for for a kindly offer uh so he needs a harder war and he also believes, uh, it's his analysis, uh, that um, in a military sense, slavery is the South's backbone, that it's the backbone of their economy, and if you could strike at slavery and weaken the institution, 
Uh, it's like strategic bombing in the Second World War. You would weaken the whole infrastructure that sustains the Confederacy. But on a deeper level, and, and Lincoln operates on this deeper level, he sees slavery as the, the primary cause of the Civil War. And he believes that if the war is settled in such a way as to leave slavery intact, that it's only, the only effect of that would be to, to postpone the war for another generation. But ultimately it will come to war. And therefore, he, the only way he feels he can justify the, the, the deaths that have already occurred is by saying that whatever war we fight is going to, to eliminate the cause of, of war. So by July of 62, when Lincoln's come to that conclusion, uh, McClellan obviously hasn't. When Lincoln visits McClellan at the front at at Harrison's Landing, McClellan gives him a famous letter that gives the McClellan version of what this war is about. Yeah, and and that's the the real turning point between the two men for Mm -hmm. two reasons. First, because McClellan's policy recommendations are diametrically opposed to everything that Lincoln thinks is necessary. And second, because McClellan has just lost the biggest battle of the war. And Lincoln wants, what Lincoln wants him to do is to get his army mobilized and, and back on the attack again. And instead of talking military affairs with the president, he's advising the president on political affairs. And at that point, I think he realizes that, that McClellan is more politician than soldier. And as a politician, he's an enemy. And uh, he's got to do something to um, uh, either uh, get rid of McClellan or at least reduce his power in the, uh, in the Union system. Let me change so he brings, gears at, for... At that point, he brings Halleck in, into command. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, Halleck turns out to be a first-rate clerk, but uh, not much more. To change gears for a minute, one of the other ways that you break with traditional interpretations of the Antietam campaign is that you point out, here's a a time when the Union war effort is not running smoothly, when Lincoln's having trouble finding the right person, and that part of the story is well known. But we typically think of Jefferson Davis as a, a micromanager, overly testy, uh, un, unsuccessful at strategy. Uh, and yet you portray Lee and Davis as a smooth, well-oiled team in this part of the war. Which I think they were. Uh, this is really uh, Jefferson Davis's finest moment as Confederate president and really as, as a strategist. Um, he doesn't micromanage. He's, re- he's, he's confronted with a kind of unique opportunity in which the Union offensives on three fronts had come to a halt for various reasons. In, in front of Richmond, because Lee had defeated McClellan in the seven days, and out west, because the Union just simply ran out of the resources to, uh, to, to control the territory they needed to control, and at the same time, press the advance into the deeper south. So Davis has a chance, Confederacy has a chance, to turn the tables with a counteroffensive. And what Davis does is he takes suggestions from his three main field commanders for a counteroffensive, for, for a counteroffensive each, each acting separately, and he approves them because they're going to be made simultaneously. He allows each commander to conduct his operations 
according to his own. Oh, he has recommendations, but he, but he, each each commander will be responsible for his own operations, which makes perfect sense in a given the commu- weakness of communication uh, in uh, in eighteen sixty two. So he's really at his best at this moment. And the Union, Union administration, Lincoln and his team of rivals are really at their worst. So you've got Link, Lee looking to go north after the seven days. You've got uh, Bragg and, and Kirby Smith in Kentucky, uh, right. ready to, invading Kentucky. The, uh, the, the, Lee does move north, sends uh, uh, Longstreet and, and Jackson uh, against what is now uh, the Army of Virginia, Pope's Army, uh, that's between the Confederates and Washington. And here, uh, l- l- let me ask a small point and a big point. You can take either. Uh, the small point, uh, technical one, was you suggest that the organization of Lee's army into these sort of informal wings under Jackson and Longstreet uh, but with divisions and brigades that shift back and forth at will and get broken up and part of the army goes here and there uh, is actually a sign of, of how effective it is, whereas the Union's very rigorous division into multiple corps, each with three divisions, uh, much more formal and neat on paper when you look at the uh, order of battle in the back of your book or any battle book, the Union seems much more regular but you say the Confederate system works better. Well, the, the Confederates had a better system in, in the sense that they were a veteran army. A veteran not only in the sense that the troops that, that were in the particular units that were engaged, that there were more battle veterans on the Confederate side than the Union side proportionately, but the senior officers uh, in commanding most of the divisions, which are the, the most significant uh, military units to be dealt with here, that the division commanders, the brigade commanders, and the wing commanders had worked together in action enough so that they trusted each other and understood how far their subordinates could be trusted, so that it was possible for Lee to be very flexible in assigning, uh, not, not only in the workup to Antietam, but on the battlefield itself, to shift a brigade from... Longstreet's nominal command to Jackson's actual command, and uh, to have that work with uh, really minimal kinds of friction. Whereas on the Union side, although the chain of command was was more rigidly specified, these were not generals that had worked together very much. Uh, These were not units that had fought together very much. So even setting aside the fact that a lot of these generals weren't very good or were too egotistical to cooperate with one another, they just didn't have. They just were not as 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 well practiced. It's like the difference between a uh, a pickup football team and a and a well trained professional squad. Uh, professional squad. You and and the, uh, the, the link the, uh, the the units that fought at Antietam. Uh, the uh, the. Uh, the Three of the the, the second, uh, fifth, and sixth corps had fought with McClellan on the peninsula, but the ninth corps, the first corps, the twelfth corps had not fought with McClellan on the peninsula or with each other, and the generals commanding were some of them had just been appointed a couple of weeks before. Well, some of them had served in in Pope's army, and yeah. your description of the Second Bull Run campaign, where Pope is. is between uh, Lee and Washington, D.C., uh, McClellan is still down on the peninsula. 
the, the listeners to the show know know the outlines of the campaign. The, mm-hmm. the battle is fought. Uh, McClellan doesn't quite commit treason in yeah. doing as little as he can to help Pope win that battle. But it's pretty darn close, don't you think? Well, I think so. Uh, uh, although, uh, you know, there's questions about Historians have questioned whether, whether how much of that was deliberate. The, the important thing, I think, is that Lincoln felt that while it wasn't necessarily treason, that what, what McClellan had done was to put his own political and, uh, fortunes and his career ahead of the nation's cause and ahead of the, uh, the needs of his fellow soldiers who were fighting Lee at, at, at Second Bull Run. And if you look at the correspondence, and I, I, I study it in the, uh, in the book, you mm-hmm. see that the, 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 there's an exchange of telegrams with Halleck, and Halleck is telling McClellan, I want you to send reinforcements to, uh, to Manassas. And McClellan says things like, you really want me to send reinforcements to McClellan? He says, yes, I really <laughs> want you to send reinforcements to Manassas. He says, well, I don't think I have enough wagons. He says, leave the wagons behind. Go to Manassas. He says, no, I, I can't really send them unless you clarify whether I'm in command in the Washington district or not. And, it's, and he spins this discussion out until the battle is, uh, is well and truly lost. And um, whether or not it's, it's a, a deliberate attempt to destroy Pope is, uh, is beside the point. It, 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 he's, he is pursuing a personal agenda, which is a political agenda, to the cost of the Union Army. And I guess the other reason why people have thought it was deliberate is if you read his correspondence, at several points earlier in the summer, he was, he was ab- deliriously happy at the thought that Stonewall Jackson was going to administer a whipping to Pope's army, which is not exactly the most uh, sort of patriotic of sentiments. So it's clear by uh, by the end of that campaign that, that McClellan puts himself in his political uh, concepts ahead of, of the army, ahead of uh, the nation, and yet Lincoln feels he has no alternative but to put McClellan back in charge uh, yeah. after that, and that brings us to the the uh, the actual campaign and battle of Antietam that we'll talk about in our last segment. Uh, let me propose that we take a short break. Uh, I'll put a question out to think about while we hear the announcements. Uh, after the lost order is found, after McClellan holds in his hand Special Orders 191, knows everything that Lee is doing in Maryland, has his army at his mercy, did McClellan actually have an opportunity to win the campaign, being McClellan, not, not uh, replacing him with Grant or someone? We'll leave that question hanging for just a minute. We're going to take a short break now and come right back and talk more with our guest, Richard Slotkin, about the long road to Antietam, how the Civil War became a revolution. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, VoiceAmerica.com. 
follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's p-r-o-k-o-p-o-w-i-c-z-g at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, passing along the uh, the sad play-by-play news from J.H. Rose High School. Uh, the girls are down uh, five to nothing late in the second half. Uh, not their night against Wilson Fike High School. Always a tough opponent every year, uh, but we play them on their turf later. Maybe we'll get them back. Uh, back to uh, the battles of 1862. In our second segment, we were discussing the. Uh, the, the struggle between Lincoln and McClellan, the political struggle, uh, in, uh, Rich, in, in your book, The Long Road to Antietam, you portray McClellan as the leader of the Democratic opposition while simultaneously commanding Lincoln's armies. Uh, after Bull Run, second Bull Run, Lincoln puts McClellan back in charge. Lee invades Maryland. And then, as you say in one of those coincidences that you could not put into a novel, uh, McClellan is given a copy of Lee's secret orders explaining the whole plan of campaign. Uh, was this, what possibility was there for a decisive victory at that moment? Well, that's a, that's a more complicated <laughs> question than it seems. The standard historical view is that Lee's army was, was divided in three parts well beyond mutual support of each other. So if the, in theory, if McClellan dashes forward with his full force, he can strike each of the three parts in turn, or at least strike uh, two of those parts uh, in turn. And um, there's a certain plausibility to that. But what I tried to do was to block out the placement of uh, Lee's forces and McClellan's forces almost hour by hour, but certainly day by day uh, during, during this period. And it doesn't work out quite that way. Uh, when McClellan receives the order 
Uh, Lee and Longstreet have a, I think it's two or three divisions up around Boonesboro, Maryland. Jackson has uh, about almost 60% of the army in three different segments surrounding uh, Harper's Ferry or uh, approaching Harper's Ferry and about to surround it. So if McClellan had dashed forward with his full force immediately, he would have simply... uh, he would have crossed South Mountain, which was held by the Confederates. Uh, Lee would have spotted his advance because Jeb Stuart and the cavalry were out there. And Lee would have simply abandoned the invasion of, of Maryland and retreated with Longstreet's few divisions uh, back across into Virginia without risking battle uh, because he had really just a fragment of his force at that point. So in a sense, uh, if McClellan had gone, had made the dash uh, on that first day or two after getting the order, he would have had the battle that he wanted, which is to say no battle at all. His real design was really just to push Lee out of Maryland and it, be, uh, so that McClellan himself would appear as the savior of the Union without really taking a major risk in battle. Uh, and, and then his preeminence in, uh, in Lincoln's councils would be guaranteed. So I don't, I don't think that, um, I don't think that the, the swift advance would have produced the, the kind of decisive stroke that some people have imagined. Now, a couple of days later, uh, after McClellan had worked his way across South Mountain and Lee had gathered a bit more of his army around Sharpsburg, at that point, uh, on, uh, let's say the, the, the battles on the 17th, on the 15th, or the, especially the 16th, McClellan is there with most of his troops. He's got such preeminent force. If he had attacked at that point, then he would have had a, uh, he could have, could have had a decisive uh, victory because most of Jackson's force was still not available to Lee at that point. The, the irony of interplay between Lee and McClellan is fascinating. That If McClellan had, had dashed forward Nothing would have happened. Lee would have said, I'm outnumbered. I better retreat. So there's no chance for a decisive battle. But then Lee says, here, let me give you one. I'll just stay right. put That's on right. the banks of the Potomac. That's right. Uh, That's right. It's the, it's the and then McClellan, and McClellan says, no thanks. I'm not going to attack. Right. Uh, and it happens again the day after the battle. Right. So you have Lee's uh, irrational daring. Mm-hmm. Uh, which c- creates uh, opportunities for McClellan to win a decisive battle, which is ruined by McClellan's irrational caution. And it's each man's faults and virtues sort of, sort of they, 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 they flip in their effects. Every, every, uh, every one of McClellan's delays gives him a better and better opportunity for victory, uh, up until the very last, last day, of course. Uh, whereas Lee's daring, uh, which is his uh, one of his great virtues as a general, is really exposing his command to catastrophe. Uh, he's just lucky that he's fighting McClellan at that point, and not uh, Grant or Sherman or uh, or Sheridan. Now, these people know each other. Uh, you pointed out earlier that yeah. uh, in our talk that that McClellan, of course, greatly misjudges Lee, but I'm. Curious to get your thoughts on McClellan's psychology, his uh, almost pathetic need to tell his father figure, General Scott, look, I beat your favorite boy, right. Robert E. Lee, at South Mountain. Uh, his his uh, famous 
letter to his wife afterwards, uh, I, I don't recall you discuss it as much here, where he says, those on whose judgment I rely tell me I fought the masterpiece. So, Master, a masterpiece of art. Masterpiece of, a masterpiece of art. Masterpiece of art. But, yes. but he has, he's always looking for this approval from someone else, uh, those on whose judgment I rely. He, he doesn't rely on his own judgment. Yes. He, yeah, he, 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 from the old army, both Lee and McClellan had served under Scott in Mexico, and Scott is the, the, the great hero of uh, the Mexican War. And McClellan does want to say to Scott, you, you thought Lee was better than I am, but I've, I've, just, beaten, I've just beaten your fair-haired boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but the uh, and and he uh, he he's a, a, a fascinating case a, a world class narcissist for one thing uh, it's all about him and uh, put yourself in his position that he feels that the whole weight of the war is on him that if he succeeds then his view of the union which is in his view the only view succeeds and if he fails. Either the South wins, or these radical abolitionists take over and create a, um, uh, a, a society of race-mixing egalitarians, which is something he's uh, he's passionately against. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, so he's he's in a, he finds himself continually in a terrible. He keeps saying to his wife, "I am in a terrible place, uh, and I have to watch my rear as much as my front." And so, I mean, the other, the other side of that whole business of not following up the lost order is to, to understand his character and his psychology that he doesn't want, he's afraid to risk an all-out battle with Lee. The one time he's risked it, he lost. Uh, and he doesn't need to beat Lee in order to achieve his immediate goal, which is to make himself the man who saved the Union, uh, the man who drove Lee back to Virginia. All he has to do is to get in front of Lee let, and, and, and force Lee to retreat. Uh, uh, and then he wins. And he's, uh, he's worried at this point, all through this campaign, he's looking over his shoulder in two ways. Uh, he's partly afraid of being stabbed in the back by Stanton, but he's also thinking about a military coup. Uh, and he actually uh, thinks it, it, of, of, of uh, and his... his uh, his officers are saying, let's change front on Washington. That's the phrase. Um, and that's extraordinarily dangerous. Uh, many historians have said that they don't think McClellan uh, could have literally meant such a thing. But whether he, he did or he didn't, I, I don't know how you can answer such a thing. He said it. And he said it in front of his fellow officers. And he said it in the midst of, of, an, of the uh, Confederate invasion of the state in which the national capital is located when he's commanding the army that defends the national capital. It's an extraordinarily dangerous fantasy, if that's what it is, uh, to be indulging. But again, put yourself in the position of a man who thinks that one of the things he might be obliged to do is to take over the government. What a weight of responsibility. How can he risk his army, which is the one thing on which he relies as a base of power, how can he risk the destruction of his army in full-scale battle with an enemy whose numbers he, he overrates? He thinks Lee has three times as many men as he actually has. How can he risk a battle with such a force um, under, in this crisis at, at such a moment? Uh, no, it's enough if he holds his ground 
and beats Lee's army up badly enough so that Lee will, uh, Lee will retreat back to Virginia. And that's exactly what he does. And but then, uh, ironically, he doesn't get the result that he thinks. He thinks that will make him the indispensable man. That's right. Instead, but, Link, no, Lincoln's three step, at least three steps ahead of him. Exactly. Because Link, now, that the, now that the danger of Lee's invasion is over, Lee doesn't need McClellan anymore. Lincoln doesn't need McClellan. Lincoln doesn't need McClellan yes. anymore. Uh, he's got some leisure. There's no crisis. He can find himself another general. Uh, and, and by the way, you know, Lincoln's decision to reappoint McClellan becomes a, to, before the battle becomes a little mm-hmm. more understandable when you realize that he doesn't have a lot, a lot of good good generals to choose from. Because no. the guy he chooses to replace McClellan is Burnside, who may be the worst general in American history. At, at that level, certainly. Yeah, at that level. Le- worst army commander, I should say, yes, in American history. Yes. So, I, it was interesting also when, in the aftermath of the battle, when McClellan is, is now faced with the issuance of the Emancipation Proclamation, which goes against the Harrison's Landing Letter and everything else he's ever stood for, uh, he, he's, he has been stabbed in the back by his president, who... who well, it's not in the back, right in the front, because they're they're against each other. Uh, as those, those wonderful photographs at at uh, McClellan's headquarters at Antietam show, you you can't see more hostile body language between two human beings than McClellan and Lincoln facing yeah. each other. But he he objects to this, and he talks to his closest confidants about what he should do politically, and they talk him out of. Yes. Of a coup or, or an overt yes. statement. Yeah, there are two. There are two phases to that. One of which he is thinking about opposing the president. If not, if not marching on Washington, then coming out with a public statement against the Emancipation Proclamation, which would have made his opposition to the president open, and uh, would have would have split the army from the civilian government. He's told not to do that by fellow officers who say, you know, that's tantamount to treason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it certainly is a violation of the Articles of War, which require him to maintain his subordination uh, to the president. Um, and his political mentors in New York also don't want him to do it, because they think that Lincoln's doing so badly, and now he's got the Emancipation Proclamation between the, the bad uh, events in the war and the the persistence of racism in the North, they think they've got a winning combination for the congressional elections that are going to take place in just three months. They don't want McClellan to confuse the issue by raising the question of military versus civilian supremacy. So, and and they, uh, they one of their arguments, too. they argue that Lincoln himself is a despot, that, that he's yes. unconstitutional, so the last thing they want is McClellan to go the same That's direction. Right. That's right. It... it uh, I mean, it's just a fascinating story how uh, this undercurrent goes on, how Lincoln has to, to keep Lee away while using the tool at hand, which is McClellan, how McClellan is, is trying to fight these two battles. Right. Uh, you, you show the partnership between Lee and Davis that uh, normally is disparaged, but here it works well. Uh, the description of the battle, and if, if we had two more hours, we would go over that in detail, but that's also... Uh, very dramatically told, and 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 all much from the the leaders level. Uh, I'll just throw this out for our listeners who are going to rush out and buy a copy of this. The last twenty years, we've seen a lot of the ground up stories of battles, soldiers' eye view, 
and in some ways, this is a refreshing old-fashioned general's eye view. Yeah. Uh, this is about the decisions that are made, not yeah. not the experience of the, the battle. Right, and, and about it about that the fact that these decisions have to be made in ignorance of the result that we know is going to happen, but they don't they don't know what the most likely result is, and therefore that made under in, in, uh, with a tremendous sense of what's at risk, and therefore what courage it takes for Lincoln to do what he does, for Lee to do what he does, given that there is so much in the situation that is both dangerous and uncontrolled. And, and unknown. And uh, unknown. Uncontro- and uncontrolled to us is the amount of time we have left, which has gone to zero, unfortunately. Okay. Uh, I, I'm sorry, but I will uh, repeat how much I enjoyed reading this book. It, it really is an interesting take on the campaign that everyone uh, listening to the show is already familiar with. Listeners, you'll want to get a copy of The Long Road to Antietam, How the Civil War Became a Revolution by Richard Slotkin. Rich, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Oh, thank you very much. I had a great time. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Uh